Hey, welcome to the What on Earth Can We Do podcast, the show where we chat with environmental leaders from across Alberta to figure out what on earth we can do to take action against climate change and protect our environment. I'm your host, Bree Hewitt, the Communications and Engagement Specialist at the Alberta Emerald Foundation. And today we're talking about lakes and how the Alberta Lake Management Society is working to keep them healthy for all Albertans to enjoy. To chat about this topic, I'm joined by Bradley Peter, Executive Director of Alberta Lake Management Society. Let's get into it. Hey, Brad, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Excited to get into it. So maybe let's start with a brief introduction to the Alberta Lake Management Society and your mission. Sure. So the Alberta Lake Management Society is a nonprofit organization based in Edmonton. And we've been in operation for just over 30 years now. And our goal really is to improve our understanding and awareness of lakes and reservoirs and their watersheds. And so we've been able to design a lot of cool programs that support us in achieving that mission. So one of those programs that you won an Emerald Award for this past year was the Lake Keepers Program. So can you share a little bit about the Lake Keepers Program and what inspired its creation? So the Lake Keepers Program is actually one of our newest programs. And for, let's see, almost 25 years, we were running and still are running this other program called Lake Watch. And it's a really successful program. It, it's what I call a participatory monitoring program in the sense that members of the public work in partnership with our staff to collect data. So in that sense, our Lake Watch program is not really a traditional citizen science program. It's that type of partnership model. And because of that participatory approach, we were really restricted in that program by always having to send staff out to sample a lake. So let's say someone in Alberta, Northern Alberta, up by Fort Vermilion, like seven, eight hours away, wants to sample the lake. We always had to send a staff member. So logistically, it's really challenging. And you get to the lake and then you discover it's actually too windy to sample that day. So you drive all the way back home without any data. And so some of the restrictions of that model really weren't working for us, especially with remote communities. And so we came up with Lake Keepers, which is this more like traditional citizen science approach. So in this case, we are equipping people and training them to collect water quality data on their own without the need for a trained staff person to be with them. And that's really uh, kind of blown up in the past few years in both the summer seasons and then this model allowed us to adapt the program into a winter season as well. So now we've got folks all across the province in the summer and winter who are trained and equipped to collect water quality data. Awesome. Maybe we'll dig in and not dig in, but maybe define citizen science a little bit for those for those listeners who might not be familiar with it. Yeah. So citizen science is a field that it has been around for a long time and it just continues to grow, especially with the advent of you know, digital apps that people can use to record environmental observations. But in my mind, citizen science really just refers to a non-scientist who's participating in the scientific process. 
And so we've got programs such as, you know, really popular ones like the Christmas bird count, for example. This is like one that's been going on forever. And you have folks across the world collecting information on birds. That's a good example of citizen science. We have other, you know, digital versions of citizen science where people are just at their computer and they're looking at images of like galaxies and they're classifying galaxies online. That would be another example of citizen science. And there's a lot of different terms for it. I I think citizen science is maybe the most common term, but there is a movement toward using terms like community-based monitoring as well. And so largely those are kind of the same things, but our organization really specializes in this field of community-based monitoring. We try not to collect any data unless it's with or by a member of the public, essentially. So the Lake Keepers program at its core is is about community-based monitoring and could be based on that um, citizen science model. So the data that these Lake Keepers are collecting, what, what happens to that data? Yeah, so the nice thing about the Lake Keepers program is it's become flexible enough that we're able to adapt it a little bit each time to help address the specific question of the folks who are participating. So it really depends. In some cases, we're working with Indigenous communities who have trained staff members who are participating in this program. And their questions might be very different from other folks' questions across the province. So for Indigenous communities, the questions are often around how healthy is the water? Can we eat the fish? Can we drink the water? Uh, has there been impacts from industrial contamination, for example? And so we're able to, in those cases, adapt the program a little bit to answer their own monitoring objectives. And then in other cases, it might be, you know, just an angler out on the landscape who wants to know, how's the oxygen doing at my favorite fishing spot in the wintertime? And we're able to, you know, send out equipment that's able to answer those questions. So the questions that people are answering are varied, but I would say broadly as a program, we want to understand the health of a lake and especially the health of a lake over time. And so we like to see people coming back um, year to year to collect data. So we can start building up some of those long-term data sets. So there are two types of data that you gather, or maybe two different touch points for the data. The information that participants in the program gather for themselves to inform their activities, and then the data that your group collects to inform about lakes and the health of the lakes. Maybe you can touch on the data that you gather specific toward the health of lakes, and and what exactly does that mean? What type of data are you gathering? Yeah, there's a lot of different types of data that can be collected when you go to a lake. And there's lots of different ways to assess the health of a lake. Like thinking about even that term, the health of a lake, like what does that actually mean? And there's a lot of ways to go about that. So one way might be to look at the nutrients in the water and nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. These are really key for driving the growth of algae and phytoplankton. In Alberta, a lot of people get involved with our programs because they are concerned about blue-green algae and cyanobacteria. You know, these impede recreation, they smell, they kind of take over a lake, they can be toxic, they can be uh, make people sick. 
We have cases of dog deaths at lakes uh, after dogs have interacted with water around lakes. So assessing the nutrients in a lake is really critical, especially over time to understand are they increasing or decreasing. We can directly measure some of those toxins produced by cyanobacteria. The most common one is called microcystin. And so we can assess lakes from almost a perspective of a public health perspective and wonder how safe is it for humans to recreate in a lake. We can also assess the health of lakes by looking at the presence and absence of aquatic invasive species. So there's a few different ways to go about it, but our Lake Keepers program touches on each of those kind of different categories that we might be interested in. My particular favorite might be tracking the long-term health of lakes, specifically looking for long-term trends in water quality and trying to understand the drivers behind those trends. I think lakes are such good sentinels of change because they capture kind of all the activities that are happening within that broader watershed. And so it becomes like a really interesting puzzle to piece together, like what factors are driving the change? What are the cumulative impacts within this watershed that the lake is telling us about? Maybe it's even climate-driven factors. So the other really exciting uh, piece to the Lake Keepers program, I think, is the winter program. So in Alberta, the Lake Keepers program, we've been able to collect more data on winter lakes in the province in just the past five years than have been collected in Alberta in like the last three decades. And so we're really filling this knowledge gap and asking like, what are the seasonal differences between lakes in the winter and the summer? Do lakes really go dormant in the winter? Why is this lake blooming and extremely toxic in the wintertime? Like what's allowing that to happen? So not only, like you say, is it able to answer some of those more immediate questions from lake users, but we're able to start answering these kind of like more scientific questions and start thinking about those gaps in our understanding of how lakes actually function. Wow, that's so cool. Five years of data makes up for three decades of a lack thereof, which is that's so cool that that came out of this program and that that's something that you're able to keep collecting data on. And one of the really cool parts about that is when the winter program was first designed, it was really designed with anglers in mind. We thought, look at all these people in the wintertime who are sitting out on the ice, drilling holes through the ice. Surely we could get them collecting information for us. And they have jumped onto the program really well. But actually, I would say... Most of the data in the wintertime is collected by people who just want to know what's happening under the ice. These are just people who, who are curious. They're not even necessarily fishing out there. They will make individual trips in like January minus 25 on Wabaman Lake because they want to know what the oxygen is like under the ice. So it's been like really cool to find this network of lake enthusiasts who are just excited to contribute. That's so cool that people are just like, yep. I'm not even going to maybe fish here. I'm just going to go drill a hole and, and you know, take some, take some data. And, and speaking of the data when it comes to oxygen, I'm curious, what does that mean? Like the level of oxygen, is that based on, does that kind of inform you on how many fish are going to be alive? Or maybe that's a silly question, but what is the oxygen? How is that connected? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So when we think about oxygen in a lake in the summertime, for example, the surface of the lake 
against the atmosphere. There's some oxygen exchange that happens there. Uh, all the algae that grows in the water, those are photosynthesizing. So often you have elevated oxygen in lakes where you have algae blooms. And so there's lots of kind of cycling of oxygen in lakes. And all the aquatic organisms, the insects, the fish, they need oxygen or certain levels of oxygen to survive. But when you get into the winter season and the lake freezes over, it's kind of like the lake has taken one last big breath for the winter time because there's no, no longer oxygen exchange happening from the atmosphere into the water and you have reduced productivity under the ice. So there's not that photosynthesis happening under the ice that's contributing more oxygen. So the lake takes this big breath and by time you reach March, a lot of that has been used up for processes like decomposition that's happening in the bottom sediments. And so we often see a really steady decline in oxygen under the ice from, say, December through March. And if it's significant enough, you can have what's called a winter fish kill, which is a massive die-off of fish under the ice because the oxygen levels have been depleted so far. So it's been really interesting to assess oxygen conditions under the ice in the wintertime and understand what does that mean for the health of fish habitat. Wow. Okay. So it wasn't a dumb question. It, it had like a good answer that was very it's informative. A great question. <laughs> okay. Awesome. That's very interesting. Sad if there is a big fish kill off, but like maybe, maybe we'll relate that to the data. So I'm curious, the data that you collect, obviously it's used to just, just have the data, see what's going on, but does that inform your group or other groups in the province on how to take action and maybe prevent things like fish kill offs? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important pieces of the lake management puzzle in Alberta actually falls onto what we call watershed stewardship groups. And these are essentially volunteer-driven societies that exist around lakes. They kind of exist voluntarily. They're not mandated um, necessarily to be in existence, but these these great people out at lakes choose to do this and they really are the voices for the lakes and the advocates for the lakes and they're often the ones who are actually participating in our programs and our objective would be that they take the energy and momentum from participating in our monitoring programs and roll that over into a management activity and so we do have for example a guide on our website called the guide to lake watershed management planning in alberta which kind of walks these groups through how to do that effectively. But I think at the end of the day, you know, our organization can't be the voice for every unique lake in the province and every lake is experiencing different challenges. Sometimes there's commonalities, but a lot of times they're quite unique to each of those lake systems. And so we really rely on these volunteer groups to be the voice and the advocate for the lake and to roll that data into management in some cases if it's something like low oxygen levels maybe there's a more simple solution like an aeration system or something like that that a fisheries manager um, could install in the lake but when you run into challenges like nutrient pollution in lakes that's a, a more challenging problem i would say that involves a lot of watershed management and a lot of collaboration across various levels of government to try and control and i think watershed stewardship groups are our best position to lead that charge 
This really makes me think talking about the collaboration between your group and other watershed management organizations across the province that when the everyday Albertan goes to their favorite lake, maybe to to swim or to canoe or fish, they, they don't realize the all of the work that has gone into keeping this lake, this water body healthy. And to me, that's that's like one of the biggest things I'm taking away here is, is that people are, are visiting and recreating in these areas and there's been so much that's gone into protecting them. And I think that like that's kind of the message that I'm getting here that's like who are, to the people who are listening, there there's so much going on. And, you know, and and maybe some people don't understand that that the benefits of programs like these and that these lakes aren't just healthy on their own. There's work going on behind it, mm-hmm. which really hits home to that, that that this program benefits everybody. It's not just the people who are participating, that this has long-standing impacts into the future. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I it makes me wonder about this idea of environmental stewardship. And I've been thinking about this for a while. You know, our organization really promotes the idea of stewardship and tries to encourage these watershed stewardship groups to be motivated and informed and make, you know, informed management decisions. Um, but I wonder, you know, how do how does someone even like myself be a steward? I, I promote the idea so much um, to other people, but I wonder, like, am I being an effective steward myself? How do we catch all those people who are visiting lakes or, you know, a day of boating, a day of fishing? How do we build into them? Um, and maybe that's even like too paternalistic of a way to think about it. But how do we kind of encourage that stewardship ethic and that appreciation so that when people do go out to these water bodies, they're like really um, appreciating it and not taking it for granted necessarily? They're there's so many touch points to the work that you do that yeah the everyday Albertan doesn't necessarily know about and that's okay how would they but that's Mm -hmm. what I hope people take away from this is is that yeah no this I think I think as we were discussing before the podcast like telling environmental stories is so much more than publishing a, a monitoring report on a website a big PDF full of figures that people might not understand. It's like getting that message out to the average Albertan. And I guess like my lens is kind of through a lens of environmental stewardship. And I see fantastic examples of it every day from groups that we work with. But on the other hand, relying on environmental stewardship as the main approach to environmental management is also like a really fragile approach. These are volunteer groups who might not have a lot of succession planning, who might not have any funding. And so much of our healthy environments depend on their existence and their motivation. And so, you know, again, as an organization, it's something we wonder about, like, how do we, how do we make sure that these groups are healthy and and funded and resourced and motivated because they're so, so critical to the management of probably much more than just lakes in Alberta. So looking into the future with everything that we've talked about in mind, 
What are the goals of the Alberta Lake Management Society and the Lake Keepers Program? Where are you heading into the future? Yeah, so I mean, as an organization, we we do have some broader strategic objectives. And I think we're doing a good job in heading towards achieving a lot of those, or at least progressing on those. One of them, which we touched on, was supporting Indigenous communities with a achieving their own monitoring objectives. And so making sure that we're designing programs, again, that aren't too didactic, I guess, or paternalistic in in their delivery, that we're actually respecting the interests of local communities so that the data is relevant to them and not just collecting data that, you know, supports my own interest of what's happening under the ice in the winter, you know, Um, designing programs that have valuable outcomes. And I think, again, one of the more challenging objectives is converting monitoring efforts into management. And we have to be careful, I think, as an organization that the Alberta Lake Management Society doesn't become the Alberta Lake Monitoring Society, that we always have that final goal in mind. And I think as we discussed, coming up with programs that can support the most effective advocates and voices for lakes, our stewards, supporting them is probably a long-term goal so that we can ensure that we have healthy lakes for Alberta's future. Brad, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today. This was so enlightening and I'm really excited for for folks to, to hear everything that we talked about today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more, check out the resources in the show notes. The What on Earth Can We Do podcast is a program of the Alberta Emerald Foundation, a registered charity that showcases, inspires, and empowers Alberta's environmental achievements. To learn more about the Alberta Emerald Foundation, head to our website, emeraldfoundation.ca, or follow us on social media at Alberta Emerald. A big thank you to our sponsors, Capital Power, Syncrude, the Government of Alberta, the City of Edmonton, and the Alberta Beverage Container Recycling Corporation. See you next time.